Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We're excited you came across this message. The sermon you are about to listen to is from our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Amen, amen, amen. Good morning, Hope Church family. It's so good to see all of you. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them up to the book of Mark chapter 3. We're going to read the last few verses in Mark chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I want to just open us up and set up our time together with a little bit of personal history. I've shared this before, but growing up in church was my reality. Like being at church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, like that was my reality. I'm a pastor's kid, and so growing up at church was just life. It's just what we did. I heard the gospel preached so many times, I couldn't count it for you. I went to this thing, maybe you grew up going to this thing called Sunday school. Anybody ever grow up going to Sunday school? Yeah, come on. Yeah, I love some Sunday school. It is exactly what it sounds like, school on Sunday. No shade. It was great. It was great. It formed my early faith. But I grew up going to church. Church was my reality. I grew up around a lot of Christians. I loved Christians. I liked the church. But from the outside looking in, if you looked at my life as a, as a young kid, you would have thought, man, everything's going well. Everything was awesome. Here was the reality, though. On the outside, everything looked awesome. On the inside, I was a nervous, fearful, anxious kid. And I was nervous, fearful, and anxious, really, for one primary reason. I had grown up around the church and around Jesus, but I always was nagged by this reality, and I was constantly questioning, am I really a Christian? Like, how do I really, really know I'm a follower of Jesus? And this nagging sense of just uncertainty and anxiousness around this reality stayed with me all the way up until high school. I remember I was in high school, and I went to church one day, and a mentor of mine, a friend of mine, uh, he said, hey, man, I really felt prompted this morning as I was praying on my way to church to, to sit down with you and ask you a question. And I said, okay, so when do you want to do that? And he said, I, I literally, I feel like I have to do it right now. And I was like, okay. So he took me out of the church service, which I don't always recommend, but he took me out of the church service as a high school student, as a sophomore in high school. And he just sat down and he said this to me. He said, Trenton, I have one question to ask you and only one question only. And here's the question. How do you know if you really are a Christian? See, and it was this question, it it stopped me in my tracks because this question had been paralyzing me for years. You see, I will finish this story throughout the rest of our message, but for this morning, imagine with me for a moment that you and I are sitting down and having coffee, and I were to ask you this question, how do you know if you really are a Christian, are a part of the family of God? How would you answer that question? 
what would be your response to that question? You see, maybe you've walked in here and you were just like me as a high school kid. You're nervous. You're anxious. You're, you've been thinking about this for years and years and years and you just want it to be settled and done. You know for sure you really are in the family of God. Maybe you haven't been asking this question about yourself. Maybe you've asked this question for a family member. Maybe for a brother or a sister or your spouse. Maybe you've been married for 20 years and you've just always wondered, I know we go to church, but is my husband, is my wife really a part of the family of God? Is he or she really a Christian? Or maybe it's a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, and you've wondered for their sake, for their eternity's sake, are they really a Christian? And so no matter who you're worrying about today, the thing that I wanna wrestle with is this. Can we actually answer this question? And here's the really good news. Yes, we can. Thankfully, Jesus in his word is gonna give us an answer to this question of how we can really know if we're a Christian or not. And the story that we're gonna read today is from Mark chapter three, verses 31 through 35. Jesus is going to make a striking statement about how we can know who's really in the family of God. Now, if you aren't with me yet, if you're not like, man, let's go, Trenton, I can't wait to hear the answer to this question. I wanna hear Jesus' teaching. Let me give you just two reasons very quickly why I really think we all, no matter who we are, all of us need to lean into what Jesus is gonna teach us today. Here's the first reason why I think this really, really matters. For many followers of Jesus, you're a genuine follower of Jesus. Your relationship with him is characterized more by doubt then it is rest. Maybe you're in here today and you're just like me. You actually are a genuine Christian, but your relationship with him is characterized more by doubt, anxiousness, and worry, and concern rather than the rest and peace that only Jesus can give you. I want to tell you, if that's you this morning, your heavenly father, your heavenly father does not desire for his children to live in a state of constant worry and fear about their relationship with him. To give you an example, four weeks ago, four weeks ago, my wife Griffin gave birth to our second son. His name's Jackson. Jackson, look at him. Stinking adorable, isn't he? just looks like his daddy. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. She's in the room. He totally looks like Griffin. Anyway, but uh, he, he's, I, I love him. Look at his little fingers. Oh, little, little fingers. Here's the thing. So Jax was born, oh yeah, his, we, his name's Jackson, but we call him Jax with an X, so you know we're really cool parents. Um, But he was born four weeks ago, and my second son, you may know this, my second son, his name's Drake. He turned two years old yesterday. Now, yeah, pray for your boy. That's close. It's close. But here's the thing. When when Drake was born, and I do this with both my boys now, every single time we go to bed, you know this if you're a parent, you, you gotta have a routine, right? You gotta lay him down in the crib, or you do you get in the rocking chair and you feed him, or you do whatever, and then you read a book, and then maybe another book, and, and then maybe another book, and another, and then you gotta sing some songs and some more songs, and it, yeah, so you got your routine, right? Here's what I do at the end of my routine every single night with my boys. 
every single night when I'm holding my sons in my arms. I grab them and I look at them in the eyes and I pull them really close to me. And I'll whisper in their ear every single night before I lay them down for rest. I whisper in their ear this reality. Drake, Jax, your daddy loves you. Your daddy loves you. Because here's what I want them to know. I don't want them to know not only that they're loved. I want them to know that. But I want them to be assured of the reality more than anything else before they lay their head on their pillow and go to bed. I want them to know for certainty not only that they're loved, but their daddy loves them. That the special relationship that we have, it really is that. It is special and I love them. That there's nothing that they could do that would ever make me love them more or love them any less. I want them to be confident and at rest and at peace knowing that their daddy loves them. And Jesus, follower, I want you to know that if that's true for me as an earthly father, how much more true is that of our heavenly father? He's so much better than us. He's so much more loving than us. I want you to know your heavenly father does not want you in the dark about your relationship with him. He wants you to live at peace and at rest. Number two, here's the second reason why I really think this matters, and we're just gonna be blunt today. Many people think they're in the family of God when they aren't. Why do we need to answer this question? It's because so many people think they're actually in the family of God when they really aren't. And here's my great fear. My great fear is that Satan and sin are going to do their work, their work of blinding and deceiving people for an entire lifetime into believing the false reality that they're in the family of God when they're actually not. See, this is what sin and Satan do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, listen to how the Bible describes what the God of this world, Satan, does. Listen to what he does. In their case, this is the case of unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded, blinded what? The minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see, here's the problem with sin and Satan. They blind us. They deceive us. And my great fear is that many of us, you can go to church your entire life being deceived that you're actually in the family when you're not. So what do we do? Here's what we do. We go to Jesus. <laughs> we go to Jesus, and when we go to Jesus, we're gonna see he's gonna provide some clarity and some answers for us around this topic. I'm gonna read the story for us, and we're gonna find out Two ways, two ways from Jesus, from this story, that won't prove who's in the family of God. Two ways that won't prove it, and then one way that does prove if you're in the family of God. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. Mark chapter three, verses 31 through 35. Here's what God's word says. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he, Jesus, answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. 
For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. From this passage, we're gonna see two ways that Jesus points out that won't prove you're in the family of God, and then we're gonna finish by talking about the one way Jesus says you can prove you're in the family of God. Here's the first way that won't prove you're in the family of God. Ready for it? Number one, your family tree. (laughs) Your family tree will not prove if you are in the family of God. Jesus, on the surface here, is making a pretty controversial statement about the family. The story tells us that Jesus' mother and his brothers were standing outside the house that the crowd and his disciples had occupied. See, most of us know Mary, the mother of Jesus. We know Mary from the Christmas story, Mary, the mother of Jesus. But the Bible also tells us that Jesus had at least four brothers. He had James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And no, this is not Judas Iscariot who betrayed him, right? Those are Jesus' four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, And Jesus is told that they are asking for him. They they ask to call for him. They want his attention. And Jesus responds with this kind of humbling question. Who are my mother and my brothers? You see, this was a shocking statement to the family-centered culture of that day. What Jesus was doing here was not really asking who are my mother and brothers as if he didn't know. Right? We know Jesus knows who his physical mother and brothers are. That's not what he's doing. What Jesus is doing is he's using a physical, tangible idea that everybody can connect with, the idea of family. He's using that idea to teach a spiritual reality. Jesus is teaching very clearly to this crowd this truth, and I need you to hear this, Hope Church. You could be in the physical family of Jesus and not be in the spiritual family of God. I wanna be very clear here. Jesus is not downplaying the biological or immediate family in any way, shape, or form. He is simply elevating the spiritual family to its rightful place. He is teaching that our relationship with Jesus and our brothers and sisters in Christ, hear me, runs deeper than genetics. I wanna give you two spiritual realities from what Jesus is teaching us here. Number one, who or what you come from does not qualify you for the family of God. (laughs) Who or what you come from, it doesn't matter how good your family is, how moral your family is, how often you went to church, how many Christians are in your family, doesn't matter if your great, 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 great grandpa was a pastor at a Baptist church in Mississippi. Who or what you came from does not qualify you for the family of God. But here's the second reality. Who or what you come from does not disqualify you from the family of God either. See, and this is really good news for us. No physical family connection is ultimately necessary to be in the family of God. No particular racial or cultural background is necessary to be in the family of God. The family of God isn't a physical family. It's a spiritual one made up of people from all different backgrounds, all different stories, all different uniquenesses, all of us sinners who have been brought into the family through one man's life, death, and resurrection, and that man is Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. It doesn't qualify you or disqualify you. The problem, though, is that many people then and even today assume that because they come from a family tree of Christians, 
they're a part of the family of God. I've had people literally tell me when I talk to them about their relationship with Jesus, when did you become a follower of Jesus? Here's what I would get. I've always been a Christian. I've always been a Christian. My family's a Christian. It's all I've ever known. It's, it's all I know. I've always been a Christian. And I, I, I hear what they're saying, but I just need to be honest with you. Based on the authority of the Bible, that's just simply not true. And I don't fault people for thinking this way because this is what I thought. See, picking up on my story from the introduction, my mentor, when he asked me the question, how can you really know? How do you know you're really a follower of Jesus? How do you know you're really a Christian? Here's what I said to him. Well, I grew up in church. All my family are Christians. My dad's a pastor. You see, what I realize now, but I didn't then, is that I had actually placed my faith in my family's faith in Jesus and not my own personal faith in Jesus. See, and Jesus is clear that when it comes to being in the family of God, one has to personally be born again. In John chapter three, verse 16, Jesus is responding to a man named Nicodemus who asks the question, logical question, how can you be born again? And here's what Jesus says. It's probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Here's what Jesus says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, don't you love that word? Don't you love that word? You should love that word. Here's why. Because that word includes you. That whoever, no matter your background, no matter your story, no matter the sin you've struggled in this week, whoever, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Man, what a good verse. It's, it's a good verse to be the most famous one in the world, right? Here's what Jesus is teaching. Whoever believes belongs to the family of God. Your family tree won't prove you're in the family. Number two, the second thing that won't prove you're in the family of God is your proximity to Jesus. Not only your family tree, but your proximity to Jesus I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here because Pastor Scott and Pastor Ricky did such a good job in recent weeks of teaching about the crowd, but what Jesus is doing here is making another distinction between those who are really in the family of God and those who are a part of the crowd. Notice the story in verse 32. Look what happens. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mothers and brothers. Scholars, theologians, when they're studying this passage and when they're talking about it, the, the scene they think that's taking place, the way the scene sets up is Jesus is in this house and he's probably in front of a large group of people. But in the house, you see there's a distinction between his disciples, but then the rest of the crowd. They think the scene is Jesus is standing or sitting in the house, and those closest to him were his 12 disciples. They were the ones sitting nearest to him, but then on the outside of those disciples is the rest of the crowd. So when Jesus here says, here are my mother and brothers, they say he's making a distinction between the crowd and the disciples. Now, why would he do that? Why would he make a distinction between the disciples and the rest of the crowd? Well, again, we're not gonna spend a ton of time here, but here's why. The crowd was following Jesus for all sorts of various reasons. They loved his healings. They loved that he could cast out demons. They loved that he could uh, 
preached good sermons. He spoke with authority. They loved what Jesus could do. I love how Pastor Ricky said it a couple weeks ago. The crowd wanted Jesus for his miracles, but not his message. Jesus wants to be very clear here that just because you're around him and around his family, that does not mean you are a part of his family. You can go to church every Sunday, friends. You can go to church every Sunday and not be a part of the family of God. You can be interested in Jesus and what he's doing in the world and not be a part of the family of God. You can even find Jesus helpful to your life and yet still not be a part of the family of God. You see, this is the next thing that I mentioned to my mentor. In that conversation, he asked me, how can you know you're really a Christian? I said, well, my dad's a pastor. I've always been in a Christian family. But the next thing I started telling him was, I've literally been around Christians in church my entire life. I started telling him that, I said, Santi, literally since the second grade, I have been to a Christian summer camp every year of my life. And that's been true up until this day. Literally, every summer of my life since second grade, I have gone to a Christian summer camp. If anybody's been around it, I've been around it, <laughs> right? I started talking about, man, all the things I've done, all the services I've been to, all the friends I have that are Christian, and I just, I'll never forget, I'll just never forget. When I was talking with him, he really didn't say much to me. It was as if he really felt like he just needed to ask the question and let it sit. And so I was giving him my answer, but I kept getting this feeling. You ever had this feeling when you're in conversation with somebody? He asked me the question, I answer with my answer in however way I'm answering it, and I just got this feeling as I was talking to him, he doesn't believe me. And you see, it's funny, but it was actually a gift. It was a gift that God gave me because after we finished our conversation, I went on my way and for the next week, I just really wrestled with the Lord. Am I really a Christian? And I'll finish the story at the end, but here's what we're seeing. You see, he knew, my friend knew, and I know now that the two things that I was looking to and pointing to to prove that I was in the family of God really didn't prove it. My family tree and my proximity to Jesus does not prove I really have a relationship with Jesus. So what does? What does? What is Jesus' proof for who's in the family of God? And we're gonna see it right here. Jesus says in Mark chapter three, verses 34 and 35, here's what he says. Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister. What is Jesus' proof? Jesus' proof in this story for those who are in the family of God. What proves it? Doing the will of God. Doing the will of God. Now, we don't like this word, do we? <laughs> this doing word, we don't like it. We love that Jesus has done a lot for us. <laughs> But when it comes to us doing a lot, we're a little bit more hesitant, aren't we? You see, the word does here is in the active subjective Greek tense, meaning that Jesus intends for his family members to actively do things in this life. <laughs> 
And they have the choice to do those things. That's what the word, the subjective tense means. God's not gonna force us to do them. Rather, he's inviting us to make the choice to do these things. So what are we supposed to do? Well, the verse tells us we are to do the will of God. If there's one question I get asked most often as a pastor, it's usually around something about this mysterious will of God. Anybody in this room ever asked a question about God's will for their life? Anybody? Like four of you? What the heck? (laughs) I have. The questions I get all the time are, how do I know God's will for my life? Right? What's God's plan? How do I know it? Can I even find God's will for my life? It's probably the most often question I get asked as a pastor, and I wanna be really, really helpful for just a few minutes on what the will of God actually is so that we no longer have to have these conversations. I'm just kidding, all right? Here's the literal translation of this phrase, will of God, literal translation, ready for it? The desire of God. The desire of God. That word will, it's just another word for God's desire. So now the question is, what is God's will for my life? Now the question is, what is God's desires for my life? And how can I find the desires of God for my life? We ask this as if it's some sort of hidden treasure that we've gotta go on a treasure hunt for, right? What is God's will for my life? What is God's desire for my life? It's like we gotta go find it and hopefully if we search long enough and pray long enough, we'll find God's desire for our life. Listen, I wanna be as helpful as I possibly, possibly can this morning. God's desires for your life are not hidden from you. God's desires for your life are not hidden. They have been revealed in God's word. Listen, I talk to people over and over again, and they're like, I'm trying to find God's will for my life. And I said, okay, when's the last time you opened the book? Don't tell me, Hope Church, listen to me. Don't tell me you've been searching for God's will with this thing closed. Let me say to you very clearly, over and over and over again throughout God's word, he shows us his desires for our life. And I say this with so much love. I say this about myself, but I say it about us collectively as a family. I say this with love. We think his desires for our life are hidden. They're not hidden, we're just ignoring them. God's desires for your life are not hidden from you. Your father in heaven wants you to know his desires for you. He created you. He loves you. He wants you to know it more than you do. They're not hidden. We've just ignored them. I would argue most of God's desires for our life has been revealed in his word. It's not a secret. However, 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 I can feel the hate. In the words of the Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars, I feel your egg. (laughs) However, there are parts, there are parts of God's desires for our life that there's no scripture in verse four. There are parts of God's plan and desires for our life that you're not gonna turn to Philippians and find. For example, 
There is no Bible verse found in First Hesitations chapter three that said to me five years ago, Trenton, move you and your wife of five months to Las Vegas. If you missed it, there's not a book in the Bible called First Hesitations. But right, there's no verse in scripture saying, hey Trenton, you've been married five months, you just moved your wife to North Carolina, here's what you should do, really smart, move her across the country. But that's what we did. Why'd we do that? Here's why. Through seeking God in prayer, through seeking God in his word, through seeking God through wise counsel, people who know us well, love us most, and who follow Jesus, a combination of all those things led us by his spirit to say, you know what? We really do think this is what God's will for us life, will is for our life, and so we're gonna step out and do what God has asked us to do. So through his word, through prayer, through counsel, through circumstances, open doors, closed door, God uses those things to lead us into the next thing. You see, God desires for us to be obedient to his will, but let me be very, 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 very clear this morning. God desires for us to be obedient, but let me show you this. Our obedience does not earn us into the family of God. Our obedience does not earn us into the family of God. I love what Pastor Tim Keller says. Here's what he says. We must celebrate and live out the fact that we are members of a kingdom family. And it's all at the expense of our heavenly father, Jesus Christ. Do you live every day as if you are a member of God's family, accepted and loved? Remember, a child in a family obeys not in order to be loved and accepted, but because he already is loved and accepted. God desires for us to be obedient, but our obedience does not earn us entryway into the family of God. You see, I've told you, I, I grew up in the southern part of the United States. Most people call it, if they're familiar with Christianity at all, they call it the Bible Belt. I, I don't understand that. Like, I don't, just full transparency, don't understand. Bible Belt. Anyway, but I grew up in the Bible Belt, southeastern part of the United States, and I love my time there, all that stuff. And I, I say this with love, and this is definitely a stereotype, but in the worst, worst kind of church cultures in the South, the worst kind of church cultures, this is not true of every single one, but in the worst case when it comes to church cultures, when it comes to this idea of obedience, here's what it can feel like in that room. It can feel like in the worst case of cultures, here's what it feels like. It feels like somebody would say this to you. I don't really care how much you love God. I only care how much you live like God. It doesn't really matter how much you feel love towards God. It really only matters if you look like him. If you're moral, if you're cleaned up, if you don't say the bad words and you do say the right words, if you don't watch the bad movies and you do watch the right movies, right? It, it, it doesn't really matter if you really love him, it just matters if you look like him. Now, I've been in the West for five and a half years. West Coast, best coast. Love the West. <laughs> that, that was a white boy from Atlanta, Georgia. That is what that just was. <laughs> Sorry, David, <laughs> right in front of you, man. Here, now, here's the deal, love, love the West. In the South, it's, I don't really care how much you love Jesus, I just care if you look like him. Now, in the worst case, out here, when it 
when it comes to this obedience, what it can feel like, nobody would ever say this, but what it can feel like at times is, it doesn't really matter if you live like Jesus. It only matters if you love him. I don't really care if your life looks anything like the life of Jesus. It just matters. Do you feel love for him? Are you genuine in your love for him? And I just want to be honest with you this morning. Both of those realities, both of those statements are wrong biblically. Hear me say this, Hope Church. Love for Jesus and obedience to Jesus cannot be pitted against one another. They are two sides of the same coin. <laughs> Jesus himself says in John 14, 15, he said to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey me. John, a disciple of Jesus in 1 John chapter 2, he writes this. Listen to how just straight up he is. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Man, we don't like that, right? Don't get mad at me. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. God said it, not me. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. From this passage, very quickly, two pastoral concerns for me. Two things that I just feel as it relates to obedience that are pastoral concerns for me from this passage. Number one, God is not looking for perfection. However, he is interested in progress. He says, whoever abides in me ought to walk in the way he walked. God is not looking for perfection. Nowhere in the scriptures do you see Jesus demanding perfection from his followers. However, he does tell us that he expects our lives to progressively, over the course of time, look more and more like his. Now here's the thing I just feel. Many of you in here are first generation Christians, meaning you didn't have anybody in front of you in your family tree modeling the way of Jesus for you. Or maybe you're in here today and, and you've just been following Jesus for just a few years and you're looking at your life and you're going, man, I, I, when it comes to this obedience to the will of God, I'm nowhere where I wanna be. I'm nowhere near where I wanna be when it comes to my life actually looking like the life of Jesus. And here's what I wanna say to you as your pastor. I know, I know, I know that you're not where you wanna be, but hear me, you're not where you once were. You're not where you once were. I know you're not where you wanna be, you're, but you're not where you once were. And here's, that's the good news of Jesus here. Jesus, over the course of time, as we abide in him and as we pursue him in intimacy, Jesus, over the course of time, in that relationship, as we pursue him, he's going to conform us more and more over the course of time into the image of his son. Philippians chapter one, verse six says that we can have confidence because we know that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Jesus is not asking for perfection. However, he is interested in progress. Here's the second thing from this passage. When it comes to obedience and when it comes to love for God, here's what I wanna say. No love for God. If you're in here today and you don't have love for God 
and no desire for obedience to God, it most likely indicates you're not really a follower of Jesus. I just wanna love you enough to tell you the truth. The Bible says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The thing that I just said is true. God is not looking for perfection. However, he is interested in progress. But if you have no interest, if you have no interest in love for God, genuine love for God and genuine interest in seeing your life be conformed to the image of Jesus and walk more in line with his will and his plans for you. If you have zero desire and zero interest in that being a reality for your life, I just wanna plead with you for the sake of everybody here in your soul, don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. But here's the good news. Here's the good news, that no matter who you are, no matter if you're in that category or another, no matter who you are, here's the really good news. Our obedience, our obedience does not earn us entryway into the family of God. However, somebody's obedience did. It wasn't ours, it was Jesus's. You see, God in his word, in the book of Isaiah said that it was the will of the Father to crush the Son. What does that mean? It was God's plan, God's desire to send Jesus, to live the life that you and I should have lived, to die the death that you and I deserve to die, and raise again from the third day, on the third day, so that anybody, whoever, it doesn't matter who you are, what you come from, where you've been this week, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the good news of the gospel. Your obedience does not earn you entryway into the family of God. Jesus's did though. Jesus's did, and this is how my story finishes. See, I finished that conversation with my mentor and the next week, for the next week, I just wrestled and prayed and sought the Lord and I read books and I talked with people and then it led me to a Wednesday night, a Wednesday night youth service. God bless it. And I'm sitting in a youth service and I'm listening to a friend of mine preach and proclaim the gospel, and for the first time in my life, it genuinely, God, through his spirit, opened my eyes. He took off the blinders that Satan had sinned, had put on my life. He took those off, opened my eyes to the reality of two things, my need for a savior and then the beauty of my savior. And I recognized that just because I was a moral person, just because I was moral, it didn't mean I had a relationship with Jesus. He opened my eyes to the reality that just because my dad was a pastor and I grew up in the church did not make me in the family of God. However, it also, he simultaneously opened my eyes to the beauty of my Savior, that Jesus had done everything necessary, that he was completely obedient to the will of God on my behalf. So it wouldn't be because of my disobedience that I didn't get into the family of God. It would only be because of his obedience. And so in that moment, I surrendered the control of my life. I repented of my sins, turned my back on my way of living and said, Jesus, I want your way, not my way. I want you and not mine. And so I repented of my sins, I trusted Jesus. Now I haven't been perfect ever since, by no means. However, God, by his grace and by his spirit, over the course of time, is slowly but surely making me more and more and more into a person who lives and loves like Jesus. And I just wanna tell you, when it comes to personally, as a follower of Jesus, there's nothing I want more than to become the person who God created me to be. There's nothing more that I want than to become the person who lives and loves like Jesus and it's natural and it overflows out of my life and it's not forced. So if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, 
you're not a follower of Jesus, just wanna encourage you and proclaim the good news to you. Your disobedience right now to God will not keep you out of the family of God. Why? Because Jesus was obedient on your behalf. And all you have to do is turn from your sins, trust in Jesus, surrender the control of your life to him, and you can receive forgiveness of your sins and into entrance into the family of God forever. That can be your reality today. But maybe for the rest of us, if we're followers of Jesus, hear the words of God. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, my brother, and my sisters. When you examine your obedience, what does it look like? Do you have a track record of obedience, of following Jesus, living out the desires that he's revealed to us in his word? I wanna encourage you, maybe you're in here today and you just recognize, no, I have not been doing that. Here's a great opportunity for you to confess and repent and receive the forgiveness that Jesus bought for you on the cross. It's not through your confession and repentance that you gain forgiveness, it's that through your confession and repentance you experience the forgiveness that's already been given to you. Here's a great opportunity for you to confess and repent and get right with Jesus. But then the last thing, the thing that's just on my heart is I just want us to pray collectively as followers of Jesus. Would we pray and pray and pray that God would give us a hunger, a hunger to pursue him in his word, to pursue him through his spirit and to pursue him by being obedient to what he's called us to be obedient to. Would we ask God to create in us a new heart that would help us hunger naturally for the things of God more in our life. So if you're, a, you're not a follower of Jesus, I wanna encourage you, we're gonna have pastors down here, we'd encourage you, come down, talk to a pastor, we'd be honored to, to share with you what it really means to follow Jesus. I would love for you to do that. For the rest of us, for Christians, it's time to confess and it's time to ask. It's time to confess that we haven't been living according to God's will for our life and it's time to ask him to give us a heart that yearns for it even more. Jesus, we love you. God, I thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you for time with the family of God this morning. And I pray, Holy Spirit, would you move and lead us to respond in whatever way you see fit. God, we wanna be people who hunger and thirst for you, who hunger and thirst for your word, and to see our lives moved into more alignment with your will for our lives. So Holy Spirit of God, would you move in power? Would you do what only you can do? God, we love you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.